This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour with Rochelle Hunt on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Live animal exports. It's controversial. It's big business and it's emotional. And whether you're connected to the industry or not, we probably all have opinions on the issue. So how much do we actually know about it? How much do you know about the changes that are happening around the globe and how that may affect us here in Victoria? New Zealand will ban the export of livestock by sea after a two-year transition and they're citing animal welfare concerns. The New Zealand Agricultural Minister said that they must stay ahead of the curve in a world where animal welfare is under increasing scrutiny. Yet he also acknowledged that that decision will affect some farmers, some exporters and some importers. So what does that mean for Victoria? Should we be live exporting? If the conditions are right, is it okay? Is it needed or should we be taking New Zealand's lead? And then more broadly, just start to think about now how much has changed and how much as consumers that we want to know about the welfare of animals, from how they're exported to the sort of life they've led before they end up on your plate. That is, of course, if you eat meat. But we're wanting more and more information. We're wanting transparency when it comes to the welfare of animals that ultimately are destined, let's be honest, for slaughter. From grass-fed, milk-fed to free-range, how much information do you want and do you expect to be on the products that you buy and consume and even now on the menus in restaurants? And how much does it influence your decision on what you consume? And why is that important to you? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria, this is The Conversation Hour with Rochelle Hunt. Will New Zealand's ban two year, they're going to phase it out over two years, will their ban on live exports via sea, will that have an impact on Victoria? And do you think we should be following suit? Citing animal welfare concerns as a big part of the decision for New Zealand, for New Zealand, I should say, and it got us thinking more broadly about just how much information we want about the welfare of animals and the animal animals that we consume. Kath Sullivan is ABC's National Rural Affairs reporter, joining us from Canberra. Kath, when this news came out, was there much of a reaction from Victorian consumers and farmers? Hey there, Rish. Well, actually, there wasn't a lot of... um, I think people are still sort of processing what's happened, and that's because I think very few people expected New Zealand to go down this path. Here in Australia, there's been a lot of debate publicly about live exports, particularly with the live export of sheep in recent years. But when I spoke with farmers from New Zealand, they said they were really surprised by this announcement that New Zealand's made. And I just want to point out that New Zealand's decision to stop selling live cattle um, on ships, sending it off to the world, it's important to recognise that it didn't actually sell cattle on ships for slaughter. All of the cattle that were put on boats from New Zealand uh, were going off to other countries for breeding purposes. And I guess that's um, important to recognise. It's sort of a nod to the genetics and the breeding and and what the New Zealand dairy industry has been able to do. Um, 
And and this is really valuable cattle that is then going to live in another country to breed and, and produce milk for um, populations around the world, predominantly Southeast Asia and, and, and into China. So I'm not sure that um, certainly the Australian Agriculture Minister, who has oversight of our live export sector, said he had no plans to make any changes to the trade in light of New Zealand's decision. And in fact, I think that there'd be some Victorian farmers who already sell dairy cattle um, to the world who would think that perhaps they're an opportunity to pick up the Kiwi trade, which I think maybe is worth about $200 million a year to, to farmers there. And so when the New Zealand farmers were shocked by this, I mean, surely there would have been a consultation process. Was it the timing or was yeah, it the well, fact think, that it just happened, period? I think um, my understanding is that there was an element of surprise. There had been um, an inquiry that was launched. You might, if you can think back to last year, um, there was a vessel cut carrying thousands of cattle and a crew of 43, including um, one Australian vet, which actually capsized off the coast of Japan. Um, so a terrible that was tragedy. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, sends shivers down our spines just thinking about it today. At that time, the New Zealand government launched an inquiry in, into what had happened. And I think that this decision has stemmed a little bit from that. However, I'm not actually sure on how um, you can link mm. the, the boat capsizing to the welfare of uh, the cattle that were typically traded on ships. Um, of course. Yeah, and look, we're actually – we're going to speak to Australian Livestock Exporters Council in, in just a moment as well. So we'll speak to the, the Livestock Collective that are trying to, I guess, bridge that gap of knowledge between those that do export and just people and like myself that are trying to gain more information. It's interesting. I've got a text here that says, geez, Rochelle, you could have done this topic when Warwick was with you. He would have brought some presenter knowledge <laughs> and it just not being an emotional Aww. experience. That's from Craig in the bush. Now, Craig, I'm well, well aware of that. Shoes. And I thought, <laughs> You know, well, I sent was a message this morning and said, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you have trained me well. And I acknowledge that I do not have that knowledge. But the average person, Kath, doesn't. I think that's right. And the emotional right. and side of it is huge. And it's what people talk about. So those two worlds do need to come together. And even as a reporter, Rochelle, covering these issues, um, a, a frustration that I've had as a reporter is... Um, the industry's lack of willingness to engage, and that's not just live exporters, that's um, meat works, meat processing, animal processing. I think that um, some farmers really do have their back up because uh, they fear a, a backlash about what they do. So it has been difficult to link that gap and to explain why it is that we are selling cattle to the other side of the world for breeding, or in fact, um, out of northern Australia, we do sell a lot of cattle for um, which then might go into Indonesia to be fed up and slaughtered, or likewise sheep, which which come out of southern and western Australia. And it's important to understand what what drives those industries and also the impact that they would have here in Australia. Because if we were to uh, put an end to a, any one of those live export trades, it would then have a significant flow on um, across those sectors.
Let's bring Mark Harvey into this conversation, Kath. Kath Sullivan is with the ABC National Rural Affairs reporter. But Mark Harvey Sutton is the CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council. Mark, were you expecting at any point for Victoria to follow suit of New Zealand or for there to be a push for you to make changes like New Zealand? Uh, no, we weren't expecting that. It's very important to... Uh uh, point out, we, it's a very different industry in Australia, uh, both in uh, market dynamics, uh, the scale of our trade, uh, and also the regulatory environment we operate in. So our sympathies are with the New Zealand industry. This would be a very uh, disappointing uh, decision uh, for them, particularly the producers that rely on, on the trade to put competition in the market for the turnoff of livestock. But uh, no, it's fair to say it was uh, reasonably unexpected, Michelle. When we talk about the day-to-day runnings, I mean, this is an emotional conversation. There's already texts here that say animal welfare should be the priority. I hope you're interviewing Animals Australia, Animals Australia for this segment. We did actually invite them to be a part of today's program and they haven't returned our calls. But well, we're speaking uh, to a vet that can go into detail on some of the conditions and some of the welfare and elements of live exports. But can you just talk us through, Mark, the day-to-day runnings? You know, what predominantly, what sort of animals are being exported? And, and what are conditions like when we're talking about by sea? Yeah, sure. So uh, we, from northern Australia, we'll export uh, a lot of uh, boss indicus, which are uh, Brahmin cattle, uh, which are exported to markets such as Indonesia and Vietnam uh, for slaughter. Um, and they come under the SCAS system, which is uh, a regulatory system where the exporter has responsibility for uh, the animal and the animal welfare assurances right to the point of slaughter. And then uh, out of southern Australia... Can I just uh, stop you there, Mark? Sorry, because yeah, sure. I'm learning as we go here. So the Victorian, so to speak, that are sending their cattle overseas, they are responsible for the welfare and for the slaughter of that animal even once they've arrived in another country. No, that's a little bit different. So the, the animals that are sent for uh, feeder and slaughter purposes. They come under the SCAS system, but the cattle that are coming out of southern Australia, they would be for uh, building uh, the breeding herd. So China's a huge market uh, for dairy heifers, and we export cattle so they can actually build their dairy herd. So those, those animals aren't going for uh, slaughter. They're there for uh, to assist that, that process and let them become self-efficient. self-sufficient. And if I could just jump in here, Mark and Rochelle, I actually checked in with the department to find out how much breeding cattle we send to the world. Um, and last year, I think it was about $214 million worth of purebred breeding dairy cattle, like Mark was just talking about, that might go to China to help build up the herd there so that uh, it can increase its self-sufficiency. And uh, a little under $100 million in terms of beef breeding cattle um, so so there you go. So they're big numbers. And there's no doubt that this is big business for Victoria as well. But as we've discussed, it, it is really emotional. I think people want to get an understanding of the conditions and some of the changes that are being made over the years. I mean, these are the reasons New Zealand are citing they're stopping doing it. It's animal welfare. So can we just talk about how many animals we would have on board a ship, you know, how many vets or, or welfare people you would have per head of cattle, so to speak, and what those conditions are like when it comes to ventilation and space, Mark? 
Yeah, and it, it varies, Michelle. It, it depends on the, the vessel, of course. Um, so uh, you can have shipments ranging from about 1,200 to um, up into the tens of thousands. So you, you do get a, a variation depending on the vessel that's been uh, uh, chartered or that the exporter may well, in fact, own. Um, all long-haul voyages so um, and voyages with breeding stock have a, uh, an Australian-accredited veterinarian on board. Um, and their role, in, in some cases, depending on how many animals, they might have more than one. Uh, and their role is to uh, monitor the livestock. Um, but there's also Australian accredited stock hands on board as well uh, who, who have that function to, to look after livestock on board. And uh, there's some pretty stringent reporting requirements that those people have to undertake. Uh, they're, they're reporting daily on the conditions on the vessel, um, uh, ventilation, uh, the, num- the stocking density, all those sort of things are uh, governed, I suppose, by the Australian yeah. uh, standards for the export of livestock. So there, there's some pretty uh, stringent but, but appropriate requirements uh, so that cattle are constantly monitored. And how often would changes be made? I know it was only a, a, a few years ago or so, that timing of the year. So when exports are happening to the Middle East, for example, there are certain times of the year now where it's just too hot because we saw uh, a lot of sheep die uh, in one particular instance because of heat and, and, and ventilation. And there have been changes made since then. So how often would you see a report come back and say, you know what, I don't think this is working or I think over the last decade or so that the industry is should should change and should morph with with the community's concerns. Oh, it's a constantly evolving uh, process, and there's probably two levels that that occurs. Um, so, an exporter will be looking at those reports, seeing what conditions are. Uh, if there's things that need to be uh, fixed or adjusted. Um, they they will do that uh, in their own processes. Uh, but the regulation around the industry is constantly evolving, and then as science. Uh, becomes more evolved as well and developed and we uh, increase our understanding, regulation reflects that. So we're a science-based industry and that's really important to emphasise. Rochelle, could I jump in again and ask Mark, um, seeing as we're comparing ourselves to New Zealand in this instance, and I know the Australian industry likes to say how heavily regulated it is and how that comes at a cost often to exporters or producers, but who else exports animals around the world and where are we in terms of uh, our regulatory oversight? Uh, So there's over 100 countries that export livestock um, and and Far and away, uh, we have the highest standards in the world, so uh, which is really important. And to that point, uh, where I was talking about feeder and slaughter cattle as well, there's actually programs in place that uh, educate uh, receiving markets about animal welfare requirements as well. Uh, so we're a global leader in, in that space, Kath. But that can be a problem, can't it, if you're selling livestock for breeding into another country? Uh, it's very difficult for Australian exporters to have oversight of what happens once the the cattle have been sold or new ownership taken over. And I think that's a problem, Rochelle, when we're talking about breeding cattle versus that which is sold and then processed quite quickly um, in an overseas market. No, that is a distinction, Kath. You're exactly right. So breeding cattle don't come under the the SCAS process, but there are safeguards in place and, and there's industry policy. So uh, it, it's a, exporters are required to make sure that there's ins- assurances in place about where the cattle end up. So there are systems in place. 
Uh, it's not uh, to the point of slaughter uh, because it's a different uh, market, I suppose, is the best way to describe it. But you're right, that is a challenge. Um, but industry does uh, do quite a lot of work to make sure that that's addressed. And just finally, Mark, what sort of changes do you think you might see over, over the next decade? Will regulations get tighter? Will you see, you know, I've got so many texts here now saying that they would like to, to see the exports and exportation banned of animals, that there is no need to, to send live animals over in particular. Do you think that community pressure will start to have an impact? Oh, it's important we engage with the community, Rochelle. Uh, there, there's a ra- range of resources and information available, but we've certainly got to uh, look at how we engage in that conversation. Uh, a misnomer is that the, the, there's an economic case for all livestock to be processed here. I mean, there's, there's been... Uh, <laughs> there's hardly any abattoirs in northern Australia, and that's for a reason. There's a, there's a very strong economic case for uh, our industry. Um, and I think, you know, we always have to uh, engage with the community, listen to what they're saying, uh, but also inform the community about why we do the what we do. And how do we do that though, Mark? I mean, that's kind of easier said than done. But if the average person like myself, if I don't have any connection to the export market, you know, how do I, how do I get that information and vice versa? How, how do you become transparent so that people can get that information? How do we bridge that gap? Uh, well, it comes down to communication and, and it's something that the industry has uh, been challenged by, that's fair to say, uh, but it's something that we're constantly looking to improve. I also uh, hold a bit of a view that there's a responsibility for people if they want to understand how the trade works. I mean, I'm very open to people having their, their own opinions. So we're not going to say change your mind, but all I ask when people uh, make their mind up about the trade, they do so from an informed perspective. And there's a range of industry resources that can be accessed. We need to communicate those, but uh, we'd like people to seek that information themselves as well. Mark, thanks for your time. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. That's Mark Harvey Sutton. He's the CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council. And just finally, Catherine, when Mark talks about consumers, you know, you've got to get that information yourself and and vice Mm. versa. Do you think that a change in attitudes, a change in people wanting more information on the welfare of animals, the animals that ultimately many of us will choose to end up eating, you know, buying and and consuming, do you think that much of that, has been has led New Zealand to the decision that they've made? Oh, well, look, that would be a question for, for the New Zealand government. But I do think that it's a really difficult question, Rochelle, and I know that you want to focus on talking about where our food comes from and making that connection. And I feel fortunate my job shows me where my food comes from. And we're talking, we have been talking about an industry um, and food essentially that people overseas are going to eat. But I, I wonder about how many people, if they know really where the, uh, where the grain in their toast came from this morning or how, in fact, you know, the chemicals that were used in perhaps producing that or perhaps the animal welfare that was involved in the, producing the milk that went on their Wheaties. I, I feel like we've got a really long way to go to connect consumers with what happens on the farm. And I know, for example, the Australian pork industry tried recently it put out all this information on its website, tried to be as transparent as possible about the process of raising pigs and processing pigs um, for the industry here in Australia. And at the time, I felt like it was quite radical to be exposing itself all on its website. But who's going to go and look at the Australian Pork Limited website if if they don't know? And, you know, 
it's not really what we're thinking about when we're um, having our eggs and bacon in the morning, is it? So I, I don't know how you bridge that divide, but I hope that conversations like today do help and, and that that does send people perhaps searching for some... Um, more information. More yeah. information. Information is power, can, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Absolutely. Kath, thank you. Always a pleasure, Rochelle. See you, Kath Sullivan, ABC National Rural Affairs reporter. And Kath is right. We want to talk a little bit more about why is it that we want now so much information about the welfare of animals that we are, for many of us, going to consume. I'm not sure if you've been to a restaurant of late, and not all restaurants do this, but some more sort of high-end or fine dining restaurants and some that are really conscious about paddock to plate. There will be so much information about a particular cut of meat that you're about to eat, from where it was raised, what it was fed, to the point where you feel like you have an emotional connection with this beast and then you feel slightly strange about ordering it. So, you know, how much information do we want now and why is that? Judith's in Malvern East. Judith, what did you want to say? Oh, Michelle, thank you so much for talking about this. It was only by the ABC doing um, reports and presentations, I think first back in 2010, that I learned about the live export trade. Now, I eat meat myself, and my relations are actually involved in agriculture and uh, dairy and meat production. Now, I've been to many protests, peaceful protests, that have been um, brought about by the RSPCA. I've watched Landline. I've watched so many documentaries to try and have a very broad base of information. And I just firmly believe that no animal should be treated badly. They, they need to be given a professional death and seeing the footage and seeing the documentaries about what goes on. They, they can't guarantee the quality of life for an animal on a ship, let alone once it gets to its destination. And There's Judith, just- as important as those programs are and some of the changes that those programs have made, is it easy to assume then, though, that that's how it happens for all farmers, for, for all companies, and to make assumptions about other providers that maybe aren't acting in that way? Does it, does it actually discredit some other groups and some other farming practices? I don't I don't want to discredit any farmer. I have every respect for what they do, but I also firmly believe that no farmer who goes to so much trouble to raise these incredible animals that we then consume want them being treated badly. And I think this is the crux of the matter. And at least if it's been done in Australia, there's a better chance of moderating it. Mm. It was on the ABC a year or two ago that we saw what happened to racehorses in the abattoirs. Yeah, that's been another big industry where there's a lot of information coming around. Can I ask you a question, Judith? And I've noticed this as well. And there's a text coming in now saying, you know, why do you say processing pigs instead of killing pigs? And, And we use the term harvesting a lot of the time instead of killing. And just a change in language that we've noticed over the years. Do you feel like that sort of waters issues down a little bit? Have you noticed a change in just terminology? I think by education and by being shown what actually goes on, we're becoming aware of it. And of course, an animal needs to be killed in order for us to consume it and eat it, but it doesn't need to be brutalized. And I think that's that's what really affects me. And I'm passionate about having it stopped. Good on you. Great to hear from you. you. Thank you. Jackie's in Aries Inlet. Hi, Jackie. Oh, hi, Michelle. Um, I just want to say, um, you know, like how many chances are we going to keep giving the live export industry? And also the facts, the facts are that the live export laws, the laws in Australia state that there's no way of regulating how animals are treated once they're in exporting countries. So despite what Mark says, once the animals leave our shores, we have no say 
absolutely no say in how those animals are treated. How do we get a say, though? But it will stop the stop the industry. And then, I mean, what about the no livelihoods and, and the jobs that are associated? The farmers, uh, the export industry. What sort of consequences would there be? Do you think? Well, I think rather than live export, I think the ind- the industry should be the meat should be processed here in this country and then packed and exported that way. That the animals are killed in abattoirs here in Australia. And Jackie. Looking beyond exports, how much information do you want now? Do you eat meat, actually? Can I ask you? Uh, I actually don't eat meat. You don't? Okay. Mm. I was just wondering whether, if at one point, if you did, whether you wanted background and information on the product that you eat, if that's something that's important to you to know how it was treated, the welfare of an animal prior to consuming it. But there's probably been some time since you've eaten meat. Well, I don't eat meat. I haven't for a few years, but other members of my family eat meat and it is very, very important for me. In fact, I will choose to... um, I've chosen meat that comes from um, slaughterhouses that um, are reputable and actually do have all the... Some of the slaughterhouses, you'll even have abattoirs saying that the, the small abattoirs in Victoria will actually say that the bigger abattoirs are just quite vile. Um, yeah, I'm not going to name the no, one. No, absolutely no. I wouldn't let that happen. But Jackie, can I ask you, how easy was it to get the information that you wanted? About the small about, abattoirs? Well, not about abattoirs, about live exports. You know, if we're looking about consumers need to be more informed before they make make their mind up on whether how they feel about something. Did you find that the information was easy for you to access? Um, no, you're really going through animal welfare organisations and quite frankly, no one's going to do a tour of an abattoir. Do you know what I mean? Like if I said I want to go and have a look at your chicken farm to see how the chickens are being treated or I want to go and have a look at some of the feedlots, you wouldn't be allowed in. It's like that whole thing if abattoirs had glass, glass, you know, walls, no one, a lot of people wouldn't be eating meat. Jackie, thanks for your call. You know, would you go and have a tour of an abattoir or a chicken farm if it gave you the information that you wanted and made helped you make a decision about whether or not you're going to consume eggs or or meat. You know, how much information is too much information as well. This is The Conversation Hour with Rochelle Hunt on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. So over the next two years, New Zealand will phase out. There'll be a transition process of phasing out live animal exports via sea. Would or should Victoria follow suit? Dr Lynn Simpson is a registered vet. She's based on the border and she's an ex-live vet, export vet, and an independent consultant about live export issues still to this day. Dr Simpson, Welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. You've been listening to to this program. Can we start off by just talking about some of the work that you've done? You've been on something like close to 60 long-haul voyages. Is that correct? Yeah, sure. Hi, Rochelle. Um, yes, I worked on I worked on the wharf to start with as a student, loading um, the live export ships for about three years, and then I went on and did 57 long-haul voyages to the Middle East, Russia, and Turkey and Libya. And what was your job? So I was a veterinarian, and um, as a veterinarian on these ships, I might have had 1,200 cattle, or I could have had 20,000 cattle as the only veterinarian on board to look after them. There'd be a handful of stockmen of varying standards. Um, Some voyages were just sheep, and there might have been 120,000 sheep. Again, one vet, maybe two stockmen. So you're pretty pretty busy on these ships doing as much as you can. So one vet for 120,000 sheep, did you just say? Yes. Is that average? 
Is that? I mean, if you think about a classroom ratio, there's, that, that's a lot of kids you're looking after. Absolutely. You only ever get one vet on a voyage, except for at the moment we've got some independent observers. Some of them may be vets, but they're there just to observe, not to actually do the, the hands-on vet work. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's completely overwhelming, and there's no way one veterinarian can get around 120,000 patients uh, or potential patients a day and, and do them justice. So you're re- it's, it's a token effort and um, and it's really... The exporters tend to only have us there because the government requires it. So it's a little bit of a... Um, so you feel like it's joke. just ticking boxes? Yeah, absolutely. It's an insurance policy for them, so um, makes them look good. And, you know, some of them will say they really want vets on board and, and some exporters are of a higher welfare calibre than others. But in general, if they could get away without us, they would do. So will that and should that and has that <laughs> changed? Are we seeing – I was listening to some previous in, uh, interviews where they actually say that that ratio has got better now. Does it depend on the individual company? Well, it depends what you listen to, yeah, absolutely, and which ship and which destination um, – they tend to only have vets on the long-haul voyages and often some of the exporters will kick and scream that there's not even the bedding um, available for a vet to be on board. So they say, you know, we don't even have the space for a vet so they, they can't possibly be there or an independent observer. So, so there's certainly resistance to have um, people on board who should be independent and be reporting in an independent manner back to um, the government and the exporter and society in general. And on that note, um, you know, Mark was talking about reports that were coming back. I was sending reports from my very first voyage in 2001 up until 2011 when I finished sailing. And they were repeatedly ignored by both the exporters and the government. And it wasn't until the government... um, until I started doing some work for the government to help rewrite the legislation that we're currently using at the moment. But I presented some evidence that was irrefutable, photographic evidence, etc. And um, and it was released into the public. And the exporters, the industry itself, were, let's just say, quite unimpressed about this information becoming public. And, um, yeah, they basically put a block to me being further involved inside the trade. So they they really don't want transparency on, on what's going on. And people will say, you know, things have changed since I was sailing. And with sheep, the stocking density is certainly reduced to the point that um, when I started working on the ships, we were exporting five and a half million sheep a year out of Australia. Last year or the last year of statistics, maybe 2019, 1.1 million sheep left Australia. Um, the reason that's really important is the animal welfare standards that have been we've all been working very hard to to try and bring up to par have meant that trading sheep with those standards has made that trade non-economically viable, which means that the trade was was basically only viable if you could inflict you know the pain, suffering, cruelty that's all unnecessary. With um, so it wasn't viable sheep. if you couldn't get more cattle on that you needed. X amount to make it worthwhile financially. That's right. It was an economic. So how do we change that though? Because the thing is, I think people are going to have an emotional reaction to this if you're not connected to the industry. It's like the same. I got a text just before someone saying, "Oh, every time I drive past one of those trucks where there's a heap of chickens on board, you know, it sort of just makes me feel a little bit unwell." And if you're not around this day in day out, I mean, let's face facts. It's not going to look pretty having X amount of sheep on on a ship no matter what, and it's never going to be five-star accommodation that they're travelling in. 
But at what point does it become, can you, I guess, look after the welfare, the welfare of an animal and can the farmer or the exporter, can they make money? Can those two go hand in hand or is that impossible? I think it's pretty much impossible. Um, we can technically move any animal from anywhere in the world to anywhere in the world well, um, but at a high expense. So if you think of uh, valuable racehorses or endangered zoo animals, etc., we move them all around the world for you know, special reasons. But the, the cost and the effort and the manpower gone into each animal is, is absolutely huge compared to what each individual cow on a ship or sheep on a ship will get. Um, you know, point in case will be a lot of these trades are quite replaceable. So the sheep, like I say, they've dropped from 5.5 million to 1.1 million in my time involved in live export. Now, if you look around your um, your butcher shops and your supermarkets, you'll see that the price of sheep hasn't um, absolutely, you know, hit rock bottom because Australia has a massive glut of all these sheep with nowhere to go. The sheep have actually, you know, farmers are really adaptable. And um, to say that, you know, stopping a live export trade, which is not very big in the scope of um, of what we export in animal products overall, to say that these these farmers are going to to suffer and um, you know do really poorly is is a complete folly because the the cost of meat at the moment is really expensive and these sheep are actually being re-diverted to abattoirs and then being exported as children frozen. So the the, meat the, the solution could be to ex- continue to export but export them once they have been slaughtered here. And done under our processes and our rules. Absolutely. And Mark talked about the um, the lack of abattoirs in the north of Australia, and that's correct. However, about 30 years ago, there was over 30, 40 abattoirs up there. And then as the live export trade grew, Mm. those abattoirs literally just sort of fell down into the ground. So there's no reason why that couldn't be reversed. You consult all around the globe on this issue. Where does Australia fit? So if New Zealand is is banning by sea, we haven't even discussed, you know, by air and and why that makes it different. I guess it's got to do with just the conditions on board. But... Where do we sit? Are more and more countries starting to think about banning live exports and are we picking up the slack and benefiting from this? Are we falling behind? What, what, where are we at? Um, I would say our overall trade is definitely on the decline and you know anybody that's surprised about what's happening in New Zealand has had their head in the sand because the writing has been on the wall literally for decades and there has been so much... Um, uh, interaction with industry to try and improve things and for the government to do better regulation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we, we certainly have tried, but it's it just we don't seem to be able to meet a point that can be animal welfare friendly to an acceptable level and also financially viable for a business trade. So hence diversifying into exporting um, meat and versus live ex- live animals and milk products. I found out recently that over 35% of the dairy products in Australia get exported. So we're talking UHT milk, we're talking milk powder, so there's no reason to send these breeding animals. And the breeding um, uh, descriptor is a little bit deceptive because I've certainly taken voyages of animals that were declared as breeding animals, and I'm talking beef cattle like Herefords, Angus, etc., which are all through Victoria, and... Um, and I suspect that when they've arrived in their country of destination, they've been sent straight to slaughter because by by labelling them as breeding animals, it means that they can avoid going through the SCAS process, which is the, the um, import to slaughter interval uh, 
trekking. They're basically just considered as breeding animals that are too difficult to uh, track to the end of their lifetime, which, of course, they have an end of lifetime. They're all going to get slaughtered at some point. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's a tricky little uh, shortcut that some of the exporters have been found to be taking. So, How big is the industry of sending things like embryos now, and is that the future of live exports? It's certainly growing. I don't know exactly um, at what point they're at. I know that you know embryos and semen travel all around the world um, and have done for decades and decades. I presented in New Zealand oh, about two years ago, three years ago maybe, and um, and I was really impressed by the uptake of interest and and not just the uptake of interest when I discussed replacing um, sending breeding animals with you know sending semen and and embryos, but the fact that they'd already looked into it. So New Zealand was already sort of ahead of the head of the game um, before I even got there to talk about this stuff. So it doesn't surprise me at all that they've finally gone. You know what? We we can we can manage alternatives. We don't need to put our animals on ships, and we don't need to put them in situations that we can't control. Because once you put an animal on a ship, you've got things like mechanical breakdowns that can happen, like you know your engine or your propulsion or your steering, um, your fresh water production. Because we make our own water on those ships. If, if that machine breaks down, then you've got no fresh water and you're stuck in the middle of the ocean. You can't find any. Um, if you have bad weather, which, you know, unfortunately multiple ships that I know of with people I've known um, on board have gone down and people have died and animals have died, um, that can't be controlled. Political tensions and trade tensions, when an animal, when a ship leaves port in, say, New Zealand or Australia, and then maybe three, four weeks later arrives in its destination country, all sorts of political and trade games may have happened mm. in that time frame and they're completely beyond our control and you're are right. Are we different though and are we set up different here? I know that in New Zealand the Agricultural Minister has said, look, it, to begin with it may have an impact on farmers but if we were to follow suit here, hypothetically, I know that we're not, but hypothetically if we were, are, are many farming practices now though set up here so that, that we do rely on live exports and what needs to change for that not to be the case, so if we wanted to shift, we could. Of the animals that we um, produce in Australia, a very small uh, percentage, so maybe 7% of cattle, get exported live. The rest of those animals get processed in Australia, and processed is one of those, you know, keep it clean words for slaughter. Um, so they get processed in Australia. They either get consumed domestically or they get exported um, to other countries. Um, most farmers do not work, especially in, the, in southern Australia, do not operate based on intending to send their animals to live export. A lot of them will not know that when they send them to just the generic market that exporters might buy them. They, they just think that they're going into the domestic chain. So, you know, a farmer in Victoria or anywhere, if they don't want to be part of the live export chain, I always recommend to them that they sell directly to a processor, to, a, to an abattoir, so that they know that those animals aren't going to get scooped up and put on a ship and then be put out of anybody's animal welfare control. So that's something that your everyday Victorian farmer can do right now and they can talk to their stock agent and mm. say, I want to you know, bypass the, the sale yards and I want to know where these animals are going. So most farmers, they, they may dabble with live export, but a lot of the ones that I know that dabble have often got burnt and they've been promised prices and it's not been delivered mm. and they've not been happy. But there are a few bigger, uh, bigger organisations that sort of rely on their relationship and chain with the live exporters. And just finally, Lynn, you know, a few texts along the lines of saying, you know, take the emotion out of this. This shouldn't be an emotional conversation. And I'm 
by no means. I'm just trying to learn about this like everybody else. And I'm not saying that one way is right or wrong, but we do need information and we do need transparency. And with an issue like live exports, is it impossible to research, to work, to think about in this industry without emotion? Um. Well, as a veterinarian, I often get told that I'm not emotional enough. And then, you know, some people who are very pro-life expert will say that, you know, I'm too emotional. And then I'll speak to some animal rights activists, etc., and they'll say I'm not emotional enough, I'm too clinical. So I think from a veterinary point of view, I try to keep things very clinical. I'm, I'm a meat eater, and I certainly, you know, take notice when I'm looking at a menu in a, in a restaurant of what the words are and what they mean, and I try and pick the higher welfare animal. Um, flip side of that, if I'm overseas... I will not eat red meat from a country that I know that imports meat because I've seen um, and I know the amount of medication that I've delivered personally to animals on these ships when they get, um, you know, diseases or injuries or, you know, things go wrong and I need to medicate them for whatever reason. So I don't... Your decision. But have you seen an increase when you're talking about the menus that you're eating from? Have you seen an increase in information on there? I know that I certainly have. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's some real key words there, you know, what does grass-fed mean? What does grain-fed mean? And people can look those up now. And there there are sites and I would recommend that when people research it, you don't just go to one site, you go to several um, sites of different sort of, I guess, emotional calibers. So by by that, I would say you might look up what RSPCA defines as, um, as feedlot. Uh, fed cattle or something like that and then what Meat and Livestock Australia um, define as meat as um, feedlot cattle or organic or you know grain fed etc and then you work out that there's probably somewhere in the middle Lynn thanks so much for your time and your expertise Look thank you very much for um, giving me some airplay and I think it's only a matter of time until the Australian farmers see New Zealand farmers flourish with um, whatever adaptations that they they go to and um, I can see Australia following suit. Time will tell. Dr Lynn Simpson, she's a registered vet based on the border and is an ex-live export vet and still an independent consultant on live export issues. Jill's in Croydon. Hi, Jill. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you for having me. It's all right. What do you want to say? Well, it's been interesting listening to everyone speaking this morning, um, but I'd like to make the point that for live export, there are some countries that we export to that have religious requirements that the animals have to be live and that they slaughter them according to their rituals. And has anyone thought of a way around that? I have um, no idea. That's a really that's a really interesting point. Jill, do you want more information about the meat that you consume or would you rather not know? Well, I eat meat. I was a vegetarian a long time ago for about 10, 12 years. That was by choice um, and I came back to eating meat. And these days I purchase meat from suppliers where I know that they grow locally and they slaughter locally and they treat their animals humanely and with respect. Yeah, so that's Um, a big part of your decision. Jill, thank you. Richard Cornish, award-winning food writer and author. You may hear him occasionally on ABC Radio Melbourne with Raphael Epstein. Richard, there has been a huge shift, hasn't there, when it comes to the restaurant industry in particular in just giving that background information on the welfare of an animal. 
I assure that the uh, good morning. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hello. Big um, topic today, mate, that I brought oh you in goodness. on. <laughs> no, no, it's just like there's so much to this. It's amazing. To narrow it down to the information, people are wanting more information. Uh, I wrote a book called My Year Without Meat, oh, something close to six years ago. And back then, I think the stats for vegetarian Australians was under around about 5 to 8%. Uh, it's gone up to about 12%, according to a recent uh, survey sponsored by Animals Australia. More people are eating less meat. People are aiming to eat better meat and they want to know where their meat comes from. We're not talking about everyone, but we're talking about a sizable part of the population and it is growing. They want facts. They want to know what sort of animal it is. They want to know where it grew and how it grew for various different reasons. But I do, I do know after eating a lot of meat throughout my life that animals that are well-fed, well-watered, well-sheltered, well-bred, uh, well-killed and well-butchered taste a lot better than the uh, converse. Is there not some irony in all of this? As, I mean, I'm a meat eater. I was vego for a long time. I've been a meat eater for a long time as well. And then a little part of me, I want all of that information. And then I kind of regret having all that information at the same time as I'm about to tuck into my steak or my palm or whatever it may be. I just listened to your previous guest being criticised for being uh, too emotional or not emotional enough. We're talking about animals. We're talking about sentient animals. I grew up on a farm raising uh, dairy cattle, beef cattle, pigs. Um, and, yeah, I have killed animals with my own hands, and they are sentient. They know what's going on, uh, and they feel fear, they feel pain. So, yeah, there should be emotion because we're taking another animal's life. Um, uh, we are part of that. We've, you know, humans haven't become humans without that. But it is something that needs to be taken into account. And having that information does bring you closer to the animal. Having it where it's, you know, where it's from, where, where it's, what its breed is, what it's fed. If you start imagining that animal, it, it makes it hard, that, that decision to eat meat uh, more difficult because you're more informed. And I think that that's really the responsible part of an omnivore is actually knowing it and being able to make that decision with all that information. And all that information and, you know, we heard earlier from the Livestock Association saying, well, get informed. And people saying, well, I am trying to get informed. Yet we've had callers saying, well, if I wanted to go and do a tour of an abattoir, I'm sure I wouldn't be allowed to. How accessible is information? And if you'd look at some of these websites, to be honest, some of the pictures are cutesy little pigs and everything looks all rosy and it's not the reality of the world there. And most of us, you know, if we really think about the reality, we, we know that. But how accessible is real information do you think oh look the um the absolute terror of the uh, of the death of an animal in abattoir uh, if you see that with your own eyes you pro pro i reckon 90 percent of the listeners now would become vegetarian it, 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 it is it is pretty horrific it's not it's, it is not a pretty sight i've done it i've seen it um and the and that's the, that's the uh, the uncomfortable truth that sits at the heart of any any mouthful of meat as an animal has died and not and it's not a pretty way of doing it. Some 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 of it's uh, less confronting. Some of it's less uh, traumatic for the animal. Like chicken industry, they stun the animals. They're, all the animals are stunned, but they don't kill them outright. But they, they, they know what's going to happen. So there's just a little. I'm just outside, and there's a little bit of um, action going on that's here with some with some people who are out and about. Where are you, Richard? I'm just outside the uh, the. Um, uh, the Mekek, uh, and there's some people there who, sh who just causing a little bit of a ruckus. Okay. Um, uh, probably, probably a little bit excited about the Jurassic World going, uh, Lego Brick Brickman going on. Oh, <laughs> anyway, yeah. Brickman's it's, 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 it's under control. Yes, yeah, so, sorry sure. about that. That's all right. And just finally, Richard, do you think that we'll start to see an increase of more information, in particular in restaurants, about where the protein, where the meat is coming from and, and that information? And are consumers, I guess, 
making change? Is it changing farming practices because we're rapidly. demanding more information? <sighs> so rapid. The, the change in this field is going to be breathtakingly rapid. Um, some meat, uh, uh, massive meat cons- consumption, will be seen as the coal of the of the, uh, of the food world. Its con- its links and connections with uh, greenhouse gases will be made, and we'll be seeing uh, the meat industry marketing very differently. We'll be seeing uh, regenerative uh, meat, that is meat that's grown on farms where they look after their waterways, they look after their soil, they look after their trees, as well as their animals and the, and the people on the farms. That's going to be much more centre and focused. It's actually that holistic way of farming where everything's looked after including the soil including the carbon sequestration it's going to become political and it's become very social and even more emotive and we're going to be dragged into that so being informed will be will be easier but at the same time we'll be asked to make more decisions gosh how uh, how progressive is that industry i mean how far ahead i haven't heard about that i mean that's sort of a, a holistic approach from every angle when you look at farming uh, well, the, it, it's happened, it happens a, a lot and it happens broad. Uh, there's a lot of farmers who are regenerative and some of them don't even speak about it there because it has actually been seen so progressive that they're actually seen as being lefties or whatever, even though they're so conservative with everything they do. So, but what we're seeing is an awakening towards that and it'll be, uh, when we'll actually be seeing uh, political ways of getting um, carbon credits of, more for farmers. The National Party are pushing for this. Uh, the farming lobby is pushing for this. And so what we're going to be seeing is uh, farming is being going to be seen as a uh, as a as a um, uh, as a curative for, yeah. for carbon. Even though a lot of a lot of a lot of methane gases come from the beef industry and from the dairy industry, they'll actually make themselves part of the solution. That's interesting. I'm going to go to my next guest and ask him about that. Richard, I'll let you get back to Brickman or Lego World or wherever you are. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Great to hear from you, buddy. Thanks, mate. Richard Cornish, you'll hear him on Drive sometimes with Raphael Epstein as well. But just talking about all aspects of farming, Tim Kinger, Kingmar, I should say, is a pig farmer. He's a pig farmer from north central Victoria. When we look at farming and the changes that you're making, Tim, I mean, you're looking at trying to go carbon neutral, aren't you? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Our industry has, you know, got some bold plans. And as an industry, we actually want to be carbon neutral by 2025. And uh, our farms are off the grid, the one we're building at the moment. So that's um, really, we're calling pig power. Uh, Pig power, (laughs) right. Tim, how much are you influenced by consumers when you look at the welfare of your animals and the information that you give to either supermarkets or to restaurants? How much power do we as just the average Joe Blows have in the practices at your pig farm? Oh, they, they have a very big impact and we're continually surveying the consumer. And it even saw Australian pig farmers were the first pig farmers in the world to voluntarily remove sow stalls, which was, um, you know, that was a massive commitment to make. And it was because we spoke to our consumers. And will this continue, do you think? Oh, for sure. That definitely will be. And I guess um, as an industry, we also uh, have an Aussie Pig Farmers website and we actually go through um, a pig farm. We actually go through an abattoir as I've listened to, you know, the conversations you've had today and people can actually see it's not near as bad as people think. And, and the feedback we've had from the consumers is we always felt we trusted the farmers, uh, but we had to, you know, sort of be proven to it. And, and that's what we're seeing now. They've gone, oh, that's what we thought would have been happening, and it would have been safe. The animals um, going very relaxed and, and all that sort of stuff, and they were grateful that we put this information out there. Well, so people can go and get that if they choose to. Tim, thanks yeah. so much for your time.
No worries, thank you. Tim Kingmar, he's a part of the VFF, but he's also he's the pig group president of the VFF, the Victorian Farmers Federation, but he's also a pig farmer himself from North Central Victoria. Also, too, as I said earlier, we did invite Animals Australia to be a part of today's show, but they never returned our calls. If you want to email us, you can. Conversationhour at abc.net.au. It may be about today's show or it may be another topic that you think we should cover. We do many shows that come from you, ideas and people that you think we should be talking about. And don't forget, if you want to share today's show, subscribe to the Conversation Hour podcast, go to the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.